Well, thanks, worship team. And if you're here, you got your Bibles, you got your phone, you got your device, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. That'll be our text today, 2 Timothy 3. And we are continuing on in our series that we've called Truth Seekers. And we are talking about what does it mean to be people of truth. And, and especially in this day and age when we just have a world of options out there, a world of opinions, a world of philosophies, a world of theologies, a world of political thoughts, a world of perspective, and we have access to all of it. It all comes into our phones, it comes into our house, it comes through the news. How do we sort through what is true and what is not? If we believe as we we do that all truth ultimately comes from God, how can we be grounded in God's truth and make sure that what we are living out is faithful to his truth? And how can we know when there are lots of different opinions out there, how can we sort through all of the, the strength of this person says this, that person says that, this preacher says this, that, per, that preacher says that, how can we know what the truth is? And it can be very tempting in the days in which we live just to kind of throw in the towel and say, oh, there's just so many opinions, let's just not even bother trying, but we want to do better than that. We want to go deeper than that. If God has truth, we want to be established and grounded in that truth. And so we talked about the fact that last week we sort of, I told you the old Pentecostal saying, the devil's a liar, amen? amen. And so you say that all the time, and, and we know that it's true from what Jesus said. Jesus says in John 8 that the devil has been lying since the beginning. When he lies, he speaks his native language. That's what he does. He's a liar, and he, from the very beginning, has been deceiving mankind. And it's very easy, I've been telling you in this series, to think that there are things that get said that are for other people. Because I don't ever want to think that I'm deceived, but I know for sure when other people are deceived. And so it's so easy to think that I I've got it all figured out, and I've got it all together. This is a message for other people. But no, this is a message for you, and this is a message for me. Because there is nobody who might not be deceived. Adam and Eve were face-to-face -face with God right? Face to face with him. They weren't perceiving him by faith like we are. They weren't just sensing him by the spirit like we are. They were face to face with God in the beginning. They heard the words come directly from his mouth to their ears, and they still got deceived when Satan came knocking. And so we all are capable of this, and I think when we all get to heaven, we are going to realize, oh, I, I didn't have this scripture right, or I misunderstood that. Let us not be so arrogant to think that deception only applies to other people. This is a message for you, and this is a message for me. Let's be humble, and let's not let that be a despairing thought, but let it be a thought that makes us say, okay, well, if it's possible that any of us could be deceived, how am I going to make sure that I'm digging into God's truth as much as I can? And so as we are getting going, we got Thanksgiving coming up in a couple of weeks. Uh, in Canada, we tend to borrow Thanksgiving, uh, the Thanksgiving story from the Americans. There's not a ton of like Canadian stories of pilgrims and things, so we borrow the American story. But the pilgrims in America were fleeing Europe because they were being religiously persecuted. And so they were being thrown in jail. They were being ordered not to, to preach what they were preaching. And so they were fleeing to come to the New World, and they were going to start their own colony where they could worship Jesus as they saw fit. And so their plan was, we are going to leave from England, and we're going to land in Virginia. The main reason to land in Virginia is it's super warm. And there's lots of land, and it's a great place that you can plant and start farms and have crops. And so their aim was, we are aiming for the warm, balmy southern states. That's going to be super handy when winter comes, because we're going to be snowbirds in the south. 
And what happens on the journey is they go actually wildly off course. And so this is in, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. They don't have the tools and navigation uh, factors that we have today. And so the way they tried to figure if they were on course back then was they would keep an eye on the stars. And they had special telescopes and things that would measure the stars. But the tricky thing about the stars is the stars move over the course of a long voyage, right? As the Earth goes around the sun, the stars shift in the sky. And so they've got special telescopes, and they're trying to factor that in. But then what happens if it's cloudy for seven days and you can't see the stars at all and then you're just kind of doing your best And so what happens is they don't really have the tools to measure properly and they end up going wild, wildly off course And they end up way in the north in Massachusetts and Massachusetts is about on par with where we are and winters are cold and brutal and so they arrive there kind of too late in the season to get too established. They're face-to-face -face with this incredibly brutal winter. Many of them die, and they start off in the spring, and they get their first harvest out, and they come to the fall, and they have the first Thanksgiving meal. And it's not just about, hey, we made it to the new world. It's, hey, we didn't die in that horrible winter. We, we actually survived the brutalness of this. But they went wildly off course because they didn't have the tools to measure properly where they were and where they were going. They didn't have anything to measure it against. And that is the, gonna be the concern with us as well, is that we can go wildly off course if we're not measuring our direction on something. There needs to be a standard by which we are measuring our beliefs, our behaviors, our attitude, our conduct. There has to be some sort of measuring line by which we can check and see how are we doing? Are we on course? Are we doing what's right? Are we walking in truth? And God has lots of ways that he gives his truth to us, and we'll talk about those throughout the series. But ultimately, we believe that all truth comes from God, and the clearest picture of God's truth that he gives to us, of course, is his word. And so let's take a look at our text today. As we measure our lives, our beliefs, our convictions against the word of God, it's going to help us stay on course towards what is true. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work." So we're going to talk about that scripture and lots of others today. We're going to use that as a bit of a springboard. But all truth comes from God. Scripture is the measure of that truth. And so we need to constantly be checking our beliefs, our attitudes, our actions against the word of God to make sure we are not going off course like the pilgrims did when they were traveling. So how does scripture keep us grounded in the truth? First of all, scripture is our test of truth. We talked about this verse last week from Acts 17, verse 11. Paul and Silas are traveling to different cities cities preaching the gospel. They've just been in Thessalonica, and as they have been there, the people don't like the message, and so they start a riot, and so they leave Thessalonica, and they come to Berea. So Acts 17, 11 says, now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. They weren't rioting. That's a good start. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And this is such a beautiful picture of what I'm talking about 
is that they are hearing a message. Paul and Silas are coming, and they're saying, Jesus is the Messiah. Here is the evidence we have that he is the Messiah. Here is what we believe the word of God says about the Messiah and why Jesus is the fulfillment of that scripture. And the Bereans aren't just taking it automatically. They aren't just believing everything that they're being told. They are going to the scriptures themselves every day, and they are checking. They are testing. They are going to the word of God and making sure. Paul might be telling the truth, but there are lots of people going around saying things. There were lots of messiahs that Israel had been talking about in the decades before Jesus came. A lot of people would rise up for a little while, claim to be the messiah, would die, the whole thing would fall apart, the movement would fail. So just because someone comes and says, we found the messiah, doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. And so when the Bereans are trying to weigh out, is this God's truth or not, they run to God's word. Word and they check. Scripture is our test of truth. If something is not biblical, then we are not interested in it because God's word tells us what is true, and that is the test of all of our truth. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about the Bible and you'll hear the phrase the biblical canon. And it's not canon like a gun. That's spelled differently. That's two ends. This is one in the biblical canon. And when we talk about the biblical canon, we mean the Bible as a whole. All the books of the Bible bound together in this one book that we call the Bible. But it's actually 66 different books by different authors in different times. So the biblical canon is the whole picture of Scripture. And the whole picture of Scripture is important when we're trying to establish what is truth. And that word canon, what the word canon literally means is the measuring rod. It's the thing that you measure things by. It is the authority. It is what is true always that you measure everything else against. Uh, Dave and Mary Clausen in our church went to uh, Noah's Ark down in the States, down in Tennessee, and they brought this back for me. Anyone know what this is? It's a cubit. You know what a cubit is? You remember your Old Testament? So a cubit is a unit of measurement. And so it was a way in the Old Testament it's primarily used by which they could measure things. So a cubit is about 18 inches. And in the Old Testament, the idea was it was about the length of a person's forearm. Like from elbow to fingertip was usually about a cubit. But of course, forearms are different sizes. And so if you have a really tall guy working with a really short guy and they're trying to build a house and they're trying to measure cubits, you're going to have wildly different ideas of what's going to happen. And so if you're working on a project like that, you have to have something solid and consistent that you can measure things against. So if Jason and I are working on a project, and let's say we're helping to build the stage here, and we need to build a bunch of, or cut a bunch of pieces of wood that are six feet long, and we don't have anything to measure it by, then I'm going to do a bunch of pieces of wood over here, and if Jason's doing a bunch over here, and I'm going like, well, that's about six feet, and I'll cut it there, and Jason's going, ah, I'm eyeballing it, this is about six feet over here, when we bring it together, they could be wildly different because we haven't measured them against anything. We've just brought our opinion to the table. But our opinion doesn't matter. My opinion on what six feet is doesn't matter. Whatever the tape measure says six feet is, that's what what matters. And my opinion on truth, honestly, doesn't really matter. What the word of God says is true, that's what matters. And so we have to have something that we measure against, and God has given us his word as that canon, as that measuring line. We measure truth, we test truth against what his word says. Jesus would say this as he's praying for his disciples in John 17 as he's coming to the end of his ministry. John 17, 17, sanctify them, the disciples, and I think us as well, by the truth, your word is truth. 
So Jesus knows exactly what the scripture is. He knows exactly what you find there. Jesus says, Father, your word is truth. And so we want to measure everything, test everything against the word of God. If something is not biblical, then we are not interested. Now, we touched on last week that, we'll touch on this again as well later in the series, that just because I have found a scripture that I feel like is making my point or is, or is lining up with something that I believe doesn't necessarily mean I've done all my homework into the subject because the Bible is a big book. And so we honor the whole of canon, the whole counsel of the word of God. We don't just find one scripture and hang our hat on that. We say, what else does the Bible say on this topic? What else does the Bible say on this matter? And we get all scripture together that we can find that's relevant. And then we wrestle through it in our search for truth. And so we don't ever just want to say, hey, I found my answer. I found one verse. That's it. I'm done. We want to make sure that that's not the only thing Scripture says on the matter. And so the example that I used last week was the issue of slavery, is that there were lots of people all over the world, including Canada for a while, but we usually think of the states more because they, they did it for much longer and eventually fought a civil war over it, that the southern states primarily uh, were very much in favor of slavery. They were very devout in their commitment to Jesus. They were very devout. They were churchgoers. Um, but they were fully committed that slavery was God's will. And we would look back on that now and say, how is that possible? How is it possible that people who love Jesus, who are following Jesus, who are reading their Bibles, who are going to church, how could you possibly come to the conclusion that it's okay to go and treat African Americans the way they were treated and to enslave them for life and to treat them like animals and to do that for your own wealth and your own betterment, how is it possible that Christ followers found the conclusion there? And the answer actually is they found it in the word of God. They found a couple of verses that seem to reinforce that idea. Verses like this, Colossians 3, 22 to 24. Paul writes, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So pro-slavery people went, see, it's in God's word. It's truth. It's there. If, if God didn't want slaves to be a thing, he very easily could have breathed that through Paul. And Paul doesn't say anything about it. He actually says, slaves, hey, just make the best of it. You're serving the Lord and trusting that God's going to deal with it and you're going to be fine. You'll be taken care of. And so they found scripture, and there's a couple of other places as well, where they were able to say God's truth is he's okay with slavery. He's on board with it. And now the problem with that conclusion is that that's not all that the Bible says about slavery. That's not it. And so it's very easy for us to cherry pick the verses that are going to confirm what we want it to confirm or, or line up with what we've always been taught or whatever it is. But we don't ever want to do that because the passage we read says that all scripture is God-breathed. And we want to look at all of it. And so there are a lot of verses that have a problem with North American-style slavery. Here are just a couple of them. First of all, in the law, kidnapping and selling someone into slavery was punishable by death. It was a capital offense. 
Kidnapping someone was a capital offense. Kidnapping someone for the purposes of slavery was a capital offense. So going to Africa and kidnapping people and bringing them over to be your slave could never be something that God was excited about. And also trafficking in slaves is listed. 1 Timothy 1 has this long list of things, and it says these are the behaviors that are ungodly, unrighteous, rebellious, unlawful. And there's a whole bunch of things listed there, but one of them is trafficking in slaves. And there's even more, and I, I'm not going to do an in-depth study on slavery, but there's even more to this where, uh, especially in the Old Testament, slavery always had an out, right? You, you could be a slave, but it wasn't so much about that you were kidnapped. That wasn't happening. It was, I owe you money. I can't afford to pay you the money, so I'm going to become your servant in order to pay off the debt. But even then, you could do that for only six years. In the seventh year, you had to go free. It was never for life. There was always an out. Uh, and there's more verses as well that we could get into, but there's no possible way to justify North American slavery unless you ignore a whole other bunch of verses in the Bible, right? And so if I choose to go, la, 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 I don't like them, they challenge my way of life and my economy, and I don't want to hear those things, then I can justify by cherry-picking a couple of verses. When you start to put the whole thing together, you go, there's no way God is okay with this. There is no way. I heard a famous atheist say once that uh, he could never serve God because he could never serve a God who got slavery wrong. If God was okay with slavery, then, then I don't want to serve that God. And this was in an interview, so I couldn't talk to the guy, but you just want to say, like, read the whole book. There's more. There's more. There's more. And so where a lot of scholars have landed with Paul's writing in Colossians and in Ephesians, where he's saying slaves, you know, make the best of it, and this is where I land personally as well, is that the church, the early church, is a pacifist movement. It's pacifist for the first few hundred years. Uh, we're to love our enemies. We are to love those who persecute us. We're to bless those who persecute us. And so in a time when the Spartacus slave rebellion was real, where rebellions happened all over the place, it's not that Paul is pro-slavery. It's that he wants to keep the gospel in good repute. He doesn't want to stir up a rebellion. He doesn't want to stir up insurrection. And so he's saying, slaves, just trust that God is with you in this. It's not that I love that this is happening to you, but just trust that God's in you in this. And then there's other verses where he says, hey, slave owners, you need to not treat your slaves like animals. You need to treat them like brothers in the Lord. You need to actually do this differently. And so you have to wrestle through it. Whichever side, you know, that, that you might lean to of the scriptures you're going to choose to emphasize on any matter, there is, an, there is a wrestling through that needs to happen. It's not always easy. And I, I'm always a bit hesitant of those who say the Bible Bible's black and white on absolutely everything. I go, I believe it's black and white on a number of things, certainly, and then there are other things where it takes some wrestling, and we need to actually dig in. So the point is to remember that all Scripture is God-breathed. We don't want to cherry-pick. We don't want to just grab onto verses that confirm our ideas that we already hold. We want to be willing to be challenged. Eventually, in America, enough people read these other verses and got a bigger picture of who God was that they went, there's no way God can be okay with this. There's no way. And ultimately, it came to the place of war over the issue. But uh, there were enough people whose minds were turned because they kept digging into truth. They didn't stop just with a couple of verses. They dug, and they dug, and they dug. And that's our job as well. So scripture is our test of truth. It tells us what's true. We want to measure everything against its truth. Moving on. Scripture fills us with truth. Deuteronomy 8.3, talking to Israel. And he, the Lord, humbled you and let you hunger, and fed you with manna, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. 
oh, I love it. Jesus would use that as part of his, uh, his weapon when he's resisting the enemy in the wilderness. That man does not live by bread alone. He lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so not everything in life has a crystal clear scripture that you can point to to deal with. Not every problem has a scripture, especially modern problems, because scripture is an ancient book. So it's not like everything we go through necessarily has a, a black and white verse that will help us understand what's true or not. Some things are more complicated than that. But what happens as we take this seriously and say, okay, so it's not just about the food that I put in my body. It's about the word of God that I put into my soul, that I fill my heart with, that I fill my mind with, that as I do that, every time I do that, I am filling myself with truth. I am feeding myself with truth. And so whenever I am not sure about an issue, it's not necessarily that uh, I'm going to find an exact scripture verse that can answer every single question that I have. But as I fill myself with his word in general, as I fill myself with his truth in general, I just get better at knowing what truth is. I get more familiar with what truth sounds like. I get more familiar with what his word says broadly, and that's going to help me discern the truth in anything. And I mentioned this example a couple of weeks ago. This is the classic one that we use in this topic. In a world full of lies and deception, our job is not to become an expert in lies and deception. In a world where the enemy has a lot of sway and a lot of influence, our job is not to become an expert in the enemy. And there's just, there's too many lies out there. We can't anticipate every single one. We can't possibly uh, speak to every single one. There's just too much deception out there. And so it is not our job to become an expert in deception. It's our job to become an expert in truth. It's our job to get so grounded in truth that we recognize deception when it comes. And so the old picture we would use is of the bankers, who when they're learning how to detect a counterfeit bill, they don't spend their time studying the counterfeits. They don't spend their time studying what the criminals are doing and focusing on that because there's always going to be a new technique. There's always going to be a new strategy. There's always going to be a new way to do it. But what they do is they become so familiar with the real currency what does it feel like? What does it weigh? What does it smell like? What, is it, uh, what does the coloring look like? What is the pattern? They get so familiar with what is true that if you were to put a false bill in their hand, they would know the difference. Not because they're an expert in what's false, but because they become an expert in what's true. They know what true is. They know what true feels like. They know what true smells like. And so when the false comes, they can tell the difference. And that's what happens when we fill ourselves with God's word. It's not, we can't anticipate every strategy of the enemy. We need to be aware and on guard, but we can't anticipate every single possible lie that's going to be out there. But that's not what we're supposed to do anyway. We're supposed to become so familiar with the truth that just like that banker, when the lie comes, we can say, oh, I know, I recognize, that's off. There's something off about that. Something about that doesn't sound right. Something about that doesn't smell right. Something about that doesn't feel right. And that's where we need to be so, so careful. Uh, in the age in which we live, in the internet age, in the age of 24-hour news, in the age when all the information in the world is available to us, like there's just too much out there that is not true. And we can't possibly uh, check every single thing all the time. We just can't. But we want to be so grounded in truth that we're not going to be affected by that. I've shared this story with you before. I love it. Um, I'm going to share it again. Here's a Hamilton Spectator article. In Montreal, the fish are on Prozac. So, first of all, I love this headline. I have no idea where this is going. I have no idea what that means, but I'm it's clickbait for sure. I, am, I have to know the end of that story. 
So in Montreal, the fish are on Prozac. Here's what the story is, is that Montreal is an island. It's surrounded by water. And what happened is scientists who study the fish in the waters around began to notice that some of the fish were acting differently. And so they took some of the fish and they would biopsy and, and do autopsies and try to figure it out. What they found was there was literally Prozac in the fish's brains and in the flesh. Like Prozac, the antidepressant, was actually in the fish. And so they studied where is that happening, why is that happening, and they did research for a couple of years. And what they found was is that there is a large number of people in Montreal, as in any city, who are on antidepressants and different things to help try and stabilize their mood. And so in Montreal, uh, you take your pill, it passes through your system, you go to the bathroom, the sewage ends up in the river. And so much of it was happening that the fish were swimming in this stuff all day. And as they're swimming in this stuff all day, they're ingesting it and absorbing it. And it's showing up in their bodies. And is that not the craziest thing you've ever heard? And so here's the illustration for us. The fish are swimming in these waters and they're absorbing what they're swimming in. And whatever we are swimming in, we are going to absorb whatever it is that we're swimming in. You just can't help it. It's just, you think you're going to be fine? The scripture warns us so much against the world right? Don't be polluted by the world. Don't be corrupted by the world. Be in the world, but not of the world. And scripture, I think, doesn't warn us of things unless it has a reason to warn us of things, unless these things are dangerous. And what's hard in these days in which we live is that there is a world of waters that we can be swimming in. And so whatever we are swimming in, we are going to take on. We can't avoid it. And, and we, you can't totally avoid connecting with the world or being a part of the world. But we need to be very, very careful in our search for truth what we're allowing in. right? What voices are we listening to? Because whatever you're swimming in, you're going to take that on. So if you're listening to a lot of fearful voices right now, you are going to be more fearful. If you're listening to a lot of angry voices, you are going to be more angry. If you're listening to a lot of cynical voices and suspicious voices, you will become more cynical and suspicious. If you're listening to a lot of doubting voices, you will become more doubtful. And on and on and on and on and on. And there's a world of this out there. And people are saying in this season, where's my peace? Where's my peace? And it's like, well, you're on social media for 20 hours a day, and you're listening to 24-hour news nonstop, and you're filling yourself with all of these voices that aren't God, and then you're walking around saying, Where's my peace? Why am I annoyed at everybody? Why am I exhausted? It's not rocket science. Put your stupid phones down. Turn off the news. Fill yourself with his truth. There is peace here. There is joy here. There is truth here. It's not rocket science. If I watch the news for four hours, I'm going to be stressed out. If I watch the news maybe to check in, but then spend four hours in my Bible, I'm going to be in a much better place. Our goal is not to spend our time analyzing out there what everything is to that level. Our job is to fill ourselves with truth so that when we do need to engage with the world, we are so established and familiar with his truth that we recognize the deception when we see it. That is the role of the people of God. And I feel like in the season we're in right now, it's just been so elevated the importance of this. But, you know, I don't usually plan to spend an hour and a half Googling news sources. I'll just check real quick. What are the headlines? And then, oh, that leads me to that article, to that article, to that article, to that article, to that study, to that blog, to that, to that, to that, to that. I'm on Wikipedia for four hours. Wikipedia is never wrong, right? 
And so it's just so easy to get caught up, right? We're listening to the news. It's not like, it's not evil in itself, and you want to know what's going on, and that can be okay. But the news is coming with an agenda, and the news is coming with a spirit on it, and it's not the Holy Spirit. It's not the spirit of God. The news is a tool of the world. Social media is a tool of the world. Where is your time going in your life? If you were actually to gauge and clock how much time you're spending in the Word versus how much time you're spending on your phone, and I don't mean you have when you have a Bible app on your phone, that's okay, but you know what I'm saying. Saying, how much time in scripture versus how much time in news, in social media, in researching? Because people are going, man, I'm researching. I'm trying to find the answer. I want to know the truth about this, and I get it. But if all of your energy is going into that and not this, we're doing it wrong. We're missing it. The word of God is what we need to fill ourselves with in this time. As we do that, we start to know what truth sounds like. We get more familiar with what God's voice sounds like. And as we're trying to discern what is true, as we are trying to discern his will, that begins to affect everything else in our life. So here's kind of a classic example. People often come to me, they're trying to discern, should I take this job or not? Or should I make this career shift? Or should I make this move? Now, you're not probably going to find an exact scripture that answers that question for you, but when you fill yourself with scripture, you get to know God better and what he wants and what he's looking for, and that's going to help you find that. So here are just a few verses as we're considering, should I take this job? So first of all, before we were born, God called us and gifted us. There's other scriptures that would support that as well, that God has a calling on our life, that God has gifted you in a particular way. So if I'm considering taking a job, that should be part of what I'm weighing out. Does this line up with the gifts that God has given me? Does this line up with the calling that he's placed on my life? We are to work hard. Our hard work can glorify Christ. So is this job something I can work hard at, or is it something I'm just going to kind of be lazy and work my way through? Like, is that really going to glorify Jesus if it's a job that I'm not really interested in or good at or, or gifted for. We're called to love our neighbor. We're called to serve one another. Is this a job where I get to do that, where I actually get to contribute something to my neighbor, contribute something to our society, contribute something to my town? Many, many, many other scriptures we should be looking at in a conversation like this. But my point is, when we fill ourselves with God's truth, it's going to help us discern the answer to that question. Because we're going to know him better, and we're going to know what he wants better, and we're going to know the things that we should do that is right, that is in step with who he is and what he would require. Again, it calls us to dig. We said the first week, to find truth requires a careful investigation. Truth doesn't come about easily. You have to dig for it. And so we dig into God's word. We're filled with his truth, and that helps us know what's right. Last point, scripture forms us into people of truth. Scripture changes us into people who are grounded in truth. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Whew. It judges your thoughts. It judges your attitude. Hmm. We talk a lot with my children about attitude. Not just about action, but about attitude. And many of us are willing to let God's word challenge our action. Are we willing to let it challenge our attitude? Because if I'm doing the right thing and doing it with the wrong motivation, Scripture says I will be judged by that. Even our motivations will be laid bare before him to whom we must give an account. 
Will I let it judge the things that I think that aren't right? I might be thinking things about God that aren't true, that I need to be corrected on. I might be thinking things about the way I should be living my life that aren't true, that I need to be corrected on. Scripture comes to renew our minds. Scripture comes to change our heart. The word of God is like a sword, and sometimes swords hurt. (laughs) But you're different. You're different. And God's conviction is good. The Holy Spirit's conviction is good. The word of God's conviction is good. I have reached a place in my life where it never feels pleasant when God is convicting me, but I actually get a little excited now because I go, one, he loves me enough to care, right? He disciplines those he loves. But number two, I'm going to actually be better because of this. I'm actually going to be more like Jesus because of this. This is a really, really, really good thing. If we are willing to let the word do its work, if we are willing to let the sword in, if we're willing to let it do what it's supposed to do, then scripture doesn't just become our measuring rod of truth. It doesn't just become something we feast on so we get more familiar with truth. Scripture actually changes us into more godly people. People. And godly people know the truth and want to walk in it. Scripture transforms us as God does his work. All scripture is God-breathed. Uh, we looked at that verse today to kick us off. All scripture is God-breathed. In the Greek, it is theopneustos, God-breathed. And scholars think that's actually a term that Paul probably just made up. Uh, and it literally means theos, means God. Uh, pneuma means breath or spirit. And so he just kind of mashed them together to make a new compound word. All scripture is God-breathed, is God-spirited. All scripture comes from the spirit of God. All scripture has the power of the Holy Spirit in it. All scripture is inspired by him. And so we can trust it because it comes from God. All scripture is God-breathed, God-spirited, anointed by the Holy Spirit, breathed and created by the Holy Spirit. It has the power of the Holy Spirit in it. And so one of the things that happened a couple hundred years ago in church history is a movement emerged in studying the Bible that said, basically, we need to treat the Bible like any other book. We need to to analyze it like any other book. We need to use the same critical textual analysis, and we need to really dig into it from that sort of intellectual way. It wasn't wrong, but the danger if we go too far that way and we treat the Bible like a text to be figured out, like a text to be mastered, a text to be analyzed and intellectually understood, we need to do that, no question. But the problem is when we stop there, if we're not careful, we lose this aspect of God's word. We lose the God-breathed nature of it, that there is something spiritual going on, not just intellectual. You can't understand it without the intellect. The intellect is important. We're to love love God with all our mind. But we can lose some of the mystical, some of the spiritual side of it, that this is God-breathed. It doesn't just come to teach us things. It comes to change us. The Word of God comes to encounter us. We encounter God's presence in the Word. And through the word, every time I open my Bible, that is an opportunity for me to meet with God. And study is a crucial portion of that, but it's not the only thing that's going on. Because as the spirit breathes through the word, that's where I'm transformed. That's where I am renewed. That's where I am made different. The God-breathed word. 
And so as we are taking in God's word, we become different people if we will let the word do its work. We are challenged to look beyond ourselves. So how do I live out my life as an example? What's my role in this season, but in any other season? How am I called to live as a Christ follower in the times in which we live? Here's some verses that are going to help us if we let them do their work to transform us. Luke 10, 27. What's the greatest commandment, Jesus? Jesus responds, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. If you have to rank it, that's at the top. Love God, love others. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Whew, Jesus is Lord. Your life doesn't belong to you anymore. He's Lord. And so you are following him now. You belong to him. And James 4, 7 backs up this idea, submit yourselves then to God. Your job is to bow your knee to him, to worship him, and to honor him as king. You're not the boss of your own life anymore. He is in charge. 1 John 3.16 takes the second part. We're to love the neighbor as ourself. 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Jesus has set an example for us that we are to follow. Philippians 2, 3, and 4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, listen, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. There are many more scriptures I could have chosen. Here is a handful. But the heart of it is this. How do we live our lives? Well, here's a crucial thing. Your life is not about you. You are not the most important thing in your own life. Whew. It's about Jesus, and it's about others. Your life is about Jesus, and it's about others. Your life is not about you. Your life is about Jesus, and it's about others. It is about honoring Jesus as Lord, and following him as Lord, and kneeling to him as king, and letting him be the ruler of your life. It's not about you. It's about him. Your life lived in service of him. Not only that, it's not about you. It's about other people. So it's not about what I want, what I get, my rights, my privileges, my preferences, my desires. No, you lay down your life for your brothers and sisters. You put their interests ahead of your own. It's not about you. Your life is not about you. It's about Jesus and it's about others. It's about honoring him as king and putting others ahead of yourself. It's not about you. It's about Jesus and it's about others. And the reason I'm saying it a hundred times is because our flesh does not like that message and our culture does not speak to us that message, but it is the truth that our lives are not about us. It's not about what I want. It's not about what I get. It's about Jesus first and foremost. What do you want? And what are you calling me to? And then wherever possible, how can I lay down my life for you? How can I put your interests ahead of my own? How can I live that self-sacrificing love that Jesus did for me? How can I live my life in service of the king? How can I live my life in service of you? That is the truth of God's word, and you won't hear that in what the culture says, and our flesh does not like that message even a little bit, but it is the truth, and if we will let those scriptures do their work, we will become people who live our lives in service of the king and in service of other people, putting others' needs ahead of our own, and live out that truth every day as God's work does his work in our lives. James says this as we get ready to close do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. If you're reading it and understanding it, that's actually not enough. And I would argue that we spend a tremendous amount of effort in North American church culture in the reading and understanding of it. And it can often stop there. 
right? Don't just listen to the word. Don't just understand the word. Don't just do that and deceive yourselves. Go do what it says. Study that goes nowhere doesn't mean anything. If we have all the understanding, but we're not living it out, then we're not actually engaging in the word in the way that we're supposed to. Ruxy Cavey puts it this way. The most important part of any Bible study is when we close the book. Because then we have the opportunity to enter in, to choose, to decide if we have just studied for study's sake or to more clearly fix our eyes on Jesus, our God and our guide. And I don't know if I'd agree that the most important part is when you close the book, but I, you understand what he's saying, right? If we're not actually living this out, then all the study in the world doesn't matter. And Paul would say in 1 Corinthians, it doesn't matter your gifting. It doesn't matter how great the gift is. He says, if you can fathom all mysteries, if you can understand all knowledge, and you don't have love, then you're nothing. You're a clanging gong. When I was in high school, if you were trying to be mean, um, somebody would say, oh, I like this band. Right? I love Our Lady Peace. Big band when I was in high school. I love Our Lady Peace. And if you were trying to be mean and you didn't like them, you would just say, that's just noise. It's just noise. It's not music. It's just noise. But Paul says that's us in our gifts. If we don't have love, if we're not loving others. If you have all knowledge, if you have the Bible memorized and you don't have love, that's just noise. Right? If you have perfect understanding and you have got it all figured out and your theology is flawless, which I don't think is possible in this life, but let's say it is, and you have an answer for every question and you're always the one who knows what's going on, but you don't have love, it's just noise. It's just noise. And whatever knowledge we have needs to be lived out in love. It needs to be demonstrated in love. It needs to be acted upon in service of our love of the king and our love for other people. We need to actually read and study and dig and understand and then go do it every day. Because otherwise, James says, you're deceiving yourself. You're deceiving yourself if you think you're wise and smart because you have the understanding. No, you live it out. Come on up, worship team. We're just about done. Scripture is not... The end, it's the means. The end is to be holy and committed followers of Jesus. Scripture helps us get there, and we can't do it without Scripture, but it is there to point us to the Savior. Here's a few questions for you to mull over. Um, some in our church are breaking up into the clusters, like we're doing life groups and clusters right now. Some of the clusters are just getting together and dealing with these questions. They've just decided, hey, we've all heard the sermon. Let's talk about the questions together. So if you're still looking for a cluster, that's an easy way to do it because uh, you don't have to go find something. We're all in the same teaching anyway. So here are some questions for us to mull over. First of all, how much of the word of truth am I taking in? If you were to clock your scripture intake versus your social media intake versus your news intake versus whatever other voices you're listening to in your life versus your complaining intake and grumbling intake, how much of the word of truth am I taking in? Could I honestly say I'm digging? Could I honestly say I am measuring? Could I honestly say I am seeking and making this a priority? How much word am I taking in? How well am I judging things by the word? Anything. If I hear something on the news, am I going to scripture to see if that lines up with the word of God? If I hear somebody say something in passing, am I going to the word of God to see, am I actually doing the measuring? Am I being a Berean? Am I actually digging into the text to see if that thing is true? What role is the word playing as I discern God's will for my life? Am I actually going to the Lord with my decisions or am I just kind of doing what I want? Checking in maybe occasionally. Am I actually saying, Jesus, my life is yours. I'm not going anywhere. 
James says it's arrogant for us to make plans without the Lord's involvement in it. He says you shouldn't even say, I'm going to go and do this, I'm going to go and do that. The most you should say in humility is, if the Lord wills it, I will go do this and I will go do that. Your life is not your own. You belong to him. So what role is the word playing as I discern God's will for my life? And then finally, do I have solid scriptural support for the convictions that I'm holding to? And I say solid scriptural support because the pro-slavery people had a little scriptural support, but they hadn't engaged with all of God's word on the topic. So is it solid? Is it really grounded in scripture, the word of truth, so that I can trust that I'm on the right track, that I'm not going off? We're not doing buffets right now. That's a bummer. I like a good buffet. And when I go to a buffet, there's a very real tendency that I will pick the four things that I love and eat seven plates of that and not anything else. And, you know, I can eat vegetables anytime. That's my philosophy. So I get salad at home. I can't get deep fried nonsense at home, but I can do salad later. But there's a very real tendency with all the voices out there, with all the noise, with all of the opinions, that it's very easy uh, just to grab on to the ones that, that we like the best, that sound the best. And it's like, you know what? Sometimes we need to eat our vegetables. Sometimes we need to dig in for, for a little more. Um, we don't want to cherry pick scripture. We don't want to cherry pick what's out there. We want to be grounded in what is healthy and grounded in what is real and grounded in what is true and make sure that whatever we're feasting on, it is primarily God's word. Whatever waters we're swimming in, it is primarily God's truth. And there are other ways that God has given us to measure truth as well. And so we're going to talk about those in the days to come. Next week, we'll take a break because Derek's going to be here. And then we'll pick this up again. But to be people of truth, we have to be filled with the word of truth. There's no other way. There's no possible way that we can be on course and going where we're going if we're not filled with the word of truth. And so we want to thank the God who's given us that truth today. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, please. As we get ready to close, we will worship together. We will pray together. And then we will dismiss.